and welcome to Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people known today as the Stockbridge-Muncie community. I'm Blaze Bryant. And I'm Bria Barthel. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with Mark Dunley's report on opposition to Holter Indian Point's plan to dispose of low-level radioactive wastewater into the Hudson River. Then comes my conversation with Fred Braglia from Landis Arboretum about the region's biggest and oldest trees. Later on, Moses Nagels talks with folks from UAlbany's Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies program. After that, our own Sina Bazila Hickey and Reef Larson bring news of upcoming events uh, for the Future of Small Cities Institute. And for our final segment, retired meteorologist Hugh Johnson is back in town to talk with us live about climate and weather issues, plus a forecast for the week ahead. But first, here are some headlines. A weekend shooting in Albany is under investigation. A 17-year-old boy was shot Saturday morning at first in Quail Streets. He was shot in the face and is expected to survive. No arrests have been made. Police are at some area schools after they received a threatening email. The Albany County Sheriff's Office said Heatley School in Green Island, the North Colony School District, and Waterfleet all received this threatening note. The FBI is assisting in the investigation. A man died Sunday at the Empire State Plaza. Police were called to the plaza around noon. The man fell 45 feet from a walkway. Police said no further information is being released. Charges are being dropped against a 23-year-old woman from Schenectady. A grand jury ruled Gabriella Beckwith killed her then-boyfriend in self-defense. She faced several charges, including manslaughter. 29-year-old Baquan Campbell was found stabbed to death in an Avenue B home last July. The Times Union reports... The Commission on Judicial Nominations has extended its deadline from Tuesday to Friday for uh, appropriations seeking to become, I'm sorry, for applications seeking to become the next Chief Judge of New York after receiving a limited number of new applicants following the State Senate's rejection of appellate justice hector d lasalle who had been nominated by governor kathy hochel that's it for the headlines if you are just tuning in you are listening to hudson mohawk magazine listener supported radio building community in troy and the surrounding capital region through broad grassroots participation our content is produced by volunteers to learn how you can contribute your time talents, or financial support, see the donate button at mediasanctuary.org, email us at hmm at mediasanctuary.org, or call us at 518-272-2390. Mark Dunley recently spoke with Marilyn Ellie of the Indian Point Safe Energy Coalition about why the group opposes the proposal from Holter Indian Point LLC to dump low-level radioactive wastewater from the decommissioning of that nuclear facility into the Hudson River. We're joined with Marilyn Ellie 
who is uh, an organizer at the Indian Point Safe Energy Coalition, one of the lead groups that uh, helped shut down the uh, Indian Point uh, nuclear power plant. But recently, uh, in the news, it appears that the uh, company that owns the plant, decommissioned in Holtec, um, wants to uh, discharge radioactive waste uh, water uh, in, into the Hudson River, actually something apparently they've been doing during the operation of the plant. But that seemed a little, um, not a great idea. So uh, we, we asked Marilyn to come on and say, you know, what what, what are the people's reaction to this uh, proposal? Huh. Well, um, first of all, I want to say thank you for the introduction and the credit for closing down Indian Point. However, I really want to be clear. It was the economics of the issue. That's why Entergy uh, got out of uh, nuclear in, in the Northeast. That's a whole other story. But um, it, the activists and all the stuff that we did certainly did have an impact. So thank you for that. Now, we're already in the plants closed. You don't just uh, turn off the key, turn the key and, you know, close the windows and walk away. Decommissioning is a big deal. And it has to be made very safe for the public because you're dealing with radioactive substances. The biggest thing that has come up lately is tritium. And uh, it's in the water in the spent fuel pools uh, where the radioactive fuel rods have been stored. And that's why it is radioactive. That's why it's laced with boron and with tritium and with other radioactive isotopes. So you've got a million gallons of this water. And Holtec, which is the company that um, is decommissioning the plant, <laughs> is living up to their re reputation. Let me say it that way. Quick, cheap, and dirty because they're maximizing their profit, you know good old American capitalism at work. So what they want to do with the water is what they have um, done in the past under uh, NRC regulations, which is just, yeah, go ahead and dump it in the Hudson. Let's just use the Hudson as a, a, a sewer. You know, you had to do that when the plant was operating, so what's wrong with doing it now? And my contention, and that of many others as they look at this, is that things have changed. These regulations are from 1970, and they never really looked at all at what um, these radioactive isotopes do inside the body. There was never any kind of medical um, evaluation. It was all bureaucratic based on this. We have this, so we can do this, and that's what's been going on since 1970. And... <sighs> There is no hard science on this. There are some very good indications of what happens. And uh, there are some forums. I'll certainly give you all the links and everything. But uh, Dr. Helen Caldicott, uh, uh, Dr. Mary Olson, who is a biologist and a radiologist uh, who studies radiology and gender, and many others uh, have looked at this. And they've, they've said, uh, every time you um, ingest or inhale, and that's something the regulations don't look at all. But if you ingest or inhale through water or through air, a tritium molecule, it's like a little time bomb that just goes off and it keeps its, be its beta um, radiation, but it just keeps ticking away. And what it does for as long as it's in your body, it might be 12 days, you know, until it's excreted, it might just stay there. How has the Nuclear Regulatory Commission 
uh, you know, reacted to this? Have they listened to the local citizens? And I also understand that Senator Harcum and Assembly Member uh, Levenberg has introduced legislation to get the state uh, to say no. And, and would that be controlling in the situation? Federal preemption is that an issue? Uh, yes, and I will I will deal with that. But I just want to say, you've, if you inhale or ingest a tritium uh, molecule, you've got a uh, little time bomb going off that damages your DNA. I, I just need to be real clear on that. Now, the NRC doesn't see any of this. They don't. Uh, they're just blind to it. Uh, they've always looked at a. Um, a different kind of regulation, but we're in a different time now, and we're moving towards looking at things medically. Now, who's in charge? Well, this is all uncharted territory, Mark. Um, and I, I don't, nobody at this point knows exactly what's going to happen. I have been, um, I, I have been looking at this, and I think that uh, it, why take a chance? We have a precautionary principle here. Why use the Hudson as a um, dumping ground? It's no longer a sewer. Things have changed and people's attitudes have changed. What has been the response of local governments? Have any of the city, counties, towns, and the nearby areas stood up and said, no way, stop this? It's been amazing. In fact, I, I think we're <laughs> forgetting material and, and resources and everything out. We're a little behind people in this because people hear this and say, what? You want to do what? You want to put radioactive water in my Hudson River? So um, the the county has a resolution, which I believe they're passing today. There are other county, Westchester County, Westchester County. Yes, uh huh. People are sending in requests for uh, a municipal right re uh, resolution that says, you know, it has all the whereas's in it, uh, but basically it says, um, this is not good, we don't want you to do it, and we stand opposed to it. That has been almost the um, universal reaction to dumping this. And a lot of people are not looking at the amount of radiation, they're just saying it's bad policy. It is simply bad policy. Has, you know, has this risen to the level where the Biden administration has done any type of response? Have Nuclear Regulatory Commission a little bit independent. Um, you know, what? what's the, the White House and, and Chuck Schumer, Senate Majority Leader? Yeah. Uh, what, are they, what are they saying on, on this? You mean Chuck Schumer, who gets a lot of money from um, uh, from Holtec and the nuclear industry, that Chuck Schumer? <laughs> so. Apparently. Um, they're not. Um, they're not saying a lot right now. We're working on the local level, and we're building up to Governor Hochul. Uh, she will have some power over this. Where it's, it, I'm telling you, this is a very, uh, this is a first of kind of situation. So there are no clear rules for this yet, and we're finding our way. But yes, we are. I've been writing to the governor, and we're ta certainly talking to all of our municipal uh, electeds. And it really is a no-brainer. Do you want to put radioactive uh, waste in the Hudson? No, thank you. <laughs> so uh, people have really seemed to get have gotten on board with this. Is there any possibility of litigation to stop it? Yes, yeah, sure. Well, what we're going to need is um, an injunction, probably, uh, because Holtec's position is that they've always done this. They have the uh, authority to do it now under the regulations, and so they're going to go ahead and do it.
Um, they're having uh, the same conversation in Massachusetts with Pilgrim, and they refuse to say that they won't dump it into Cape Cod Bay. People up there are having a fit, too, and rightly so. Uh, they've got the oyster industry and, and everything else there that they're working with. But and we're sort of following along in their footsteps, actually. They're a little bit ahead of us because Holtec has decided it wants to be the decommissioning um, company <laughs> du jour, I guess you would say. Um, they are just looking for every opportunity they can to get rid of all this stuff, to do it quick and dirty. They say they can be out in 12 years, uh, which is pretty remarkable and they are moving along very quickly. That's why they're talking about dumping this radioactive waste um, in August, in the summer, maybe before, maybe after. It's a construction project, so you don't quite know. But they, um, they're, what they're saying is that um, they're going to have all of the, the spent fuel rods out, which are the high-level radioactive, most toxic waste there is. They're putting them in canisters and casks, putting them on a pad. And then uh, basically after that, it's just clean up uh, ordinary, not, it's not ordinary, but to clean up deconstruction, you know, buildings and roads and all of that stuff, mostly low waste. And tritium, I, I will say, this is, we're not talking high, uh, high level radioactive waste with tritium. It is low level waste. And, um, and some people say, we'll just ship it away. And I, I just shake my head at that. There is no away. We have been talking with Marilyn Ellie of the Indian Point Safe Energy Coalition. They are just now updating their website, which is at ipsecinfo.org, Indian Point Safe Energy Coalition Info.org. Uh, for more information, uh, you can check there. And this has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Indian Point is just 115 miles south of Albany. Mark will continue to follow the story of the plant deconstruction as it develops. Thank you, Brian. Well, next, we hear from you in conversation with Fred Breglia from Landis Arboretum. As the two of you talk about big trees, old forests, and a competition to have people find the biggest trees in each species. Hi, this is Bria Barthel for Hudson Mohawk Magazine, and I have got somebody with me who is one of the coolest guys ever. Fred the Tree Man Braglia is director of Landis Arboretum, an amazing nature preserve of sorts, out in Esperance, New York. He also is head of the Facebook group Big Tree Seekers. Fred, what is this thing about big trees? Hey, thanks. Thanks for having me, Bria. Um, you know, I, I think big trees are a way that a lot of people get interested in nature in, in its simplest form. And it was the way that I got involved with trees. As a very young kid, my mother told stories about this giant oak tree that was up on a mountain behind our my childhood home. And my I was the youngest of the of three kids, and uh, my two siblings were pretty much out of the house by the time I was, you know, in kindergarten. So much younger sibling. And um, my mother always told stories about this giant tree up behind the house that the brother and sister and her would all hold hands around and they couldn't touch um, 
when they did the circumference of the trunk. So when I was about five years old, she um, she felt I was strong enough, big enough to make the hike. It's about three miles uh, round trip. And I did that with her. And uh, when I saw the oak tree, this infamous oak tree, it um, it was certainly even bigger than I had imagined in, in my childhood brain. I had expected it to be big, but it was even bigger. And, um, you know, it sort of um, got me just really interested in plants. And my mother also explained that all the forests around this giant tree had been cleared at one point. And um, this was like a remnant relic. Uh, of a forest that was no longer there. And for whatever reason, that made a tremendous impact in my young childhood brain. I went on to study plants um, at SUNY Cobleskill and later graduated with two-year, four-year, and then went on to become a certified arborist focusing on trees. So, you know, like they say, it was a big tree that got me going on, on trees to begin with. And I feel like if you can sort of show that to other people, you know, all kinds of different walks of life, all different kinds of political parties, you know, we all speak tree and uh, a big tree. If you can get someone to like it, you might very well get someone to be more interested in nature and possibly even be willing to protect it. So I know to look at a tree and say, wow, that's really big. Wow, that's tall. But you have slightly more scientific ways of measuring. How do you go about identifying like what what's a big tree and what's the biggest tree? Because I yep. understand you found the biggest tree in New York State that's been identified so far? That's correct. The biggest overall tree, regardless of species. And um, they're compared using a point formula that American Forest put out, um, which is the organization that holds the National Big Tree Registry. And that was put out in 1940. So big tree hunting is not a new sport. It's um, It's been very competitive for many, many years by a lot of people. And like I said, it started in 1940. And the formula is simple. It's the circumference in inches, the height of the tree in feet, and a quarter of the average crown spread or the canopy spread, a quarter of that in feet. And you add those three numbers together and it comes up with a point total. And, uh, okay, I see how you can do the circumference. You just take a tape measure, well, just, and put it around. Correct. How do you measure the height? Some of these suckers are really tall. They are. We we have some sophisticated equipment. Uh, I use a laser, and um, it's a hypsometer. It's a, it's a forestry tool. It, it measures the height with a couple of button clicks and to very, very accurately measure the height within you know inches. So it's really accurate. If um, people are trying to guesstimate the height, there are ways to to do this uh, in, on a budget and without all the technical tools to get a pretty good idea of a measurement. We're using triangulation, so trigonometry is how we're how we're coming up with these. Whether you're using high tech tools or whether you're using primitive tools, trigonometry is how we're how we're going to sort of get the number. And for someone that doesn't have the high tech tools, there's a couple of tricks to to determine the height. One of them is. You get your friend that you know a height of, let's say your friend's six feet tall, you have him stand next to the tree, and then you step way back and use a yardstick, and uh, you see where your friend is on the yardstick, the base of the yardstick's at the base of the tree, and then how many of your friends tall is the is the tree when you stand back, and that can give you a pretty good idea um, of the height. It's not going to be as accurate as the laser tools that we use, but it would definitely get you within a handful of feet. You're mentioning how people without tech tools can measure the height of trees. And that's because you're having a contest of sorts, sending people out to try to find the largest tree. Now, not just the biggest overall, but the biggest within each species, right? Correct. So the Arboretum's uh, 23 big tree search is, is going for kind of two goals. One of them is to see if we can't 
find an even bigger tree that will take New York's biggest tree category. And that's in total points. And then the other one is to, to find what we call species champions. Um, and what that basically means is that it's the biggest of its kind in New York. So for example, um, uh, you know, a champion apple tree would be much smaller than a champion white oak tree, um, but both would be species champions. And then to overall biggest tree will be total points, um, you know, biggest point total wins. We are looking for single trunk trees. So there's a lot of trees that are big that are a fusion of two or three trees that have grown together. Those kinds of trees are disqualified. We are looking for single trunk trees that are the biggest of their of their kind. So so single trunk plants versus multi trunks, which is more common. I could you know find a bunch of trees that are huge that would even beat the state's biggest tree category, but they would be like four or five tree trunks fused together, and those trees are 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 not going to count. So where is and what is the state's biggest tree? So the biggest tree in New York right now is a cottonwood. And it's located in Scaticoke, New York. It's on private land. And I, I did promise the owners that I would not disclose the exact spot of the tree. But um, but I will say that it's located in the river floodplain. If you are looking in the right spot, it is visible from a public road. And then are there any species champions? You said the largest within a species in the capital region? Um, yeah, there's quite a few. In fact, um, you know, actually right next to our house, here in Glen, New York, we have the largest Austrian pine um, that we've documented in New York. It's in a cemetery and Austrian pines get a lot of diseases. They get um, fungal problems called Diplodia tiplite, which doesn't really let them live too long and they end up dying. So Trees did you pine. pick your location for your house because it was near a species champion? Or did no, that just happen I, I, to work uh, out that way? <laughs> no, we, we sort of picked it because it was actually relatively close to Landis Arboretum. Now, besides the biggest trees, we have some oldest trees, and I saw that back in November 2021, they found fossilized remains in Cairo of the world's first known forest. That's Estimated right. Estimated to date back 385 million years. Yeah, so New York's got the oldest fossilized trees in the world like that. So the Gilboa area is really unique. There's other ones that are close to that age, but not quite that old, but still millions of years. And they're in Gilboa, the Gilboa uh, Fossil Museum. A friend of mine, Kristen Wyckoff, runs that. She she personally found some of the largest collections of these fossilized tree stumps in the Gilboa area. And you could, people can go and see those. Landis has old growth forest, documented old growth forest. I take it not quite that old. No, a couple of hundred years on the older trees in our old growth forest, which is more typical for northeastern old growth, um, you know, their trees do have a lifespan and, you know, a couple hundred years is, is getting up there for a lot of our eastern trees. There are trees that are a thousand years old in New York State, though, and they're uh, white cedars that are in the Niagara Escarpment down by um, western New York, uh, the Niagara River. They're white cedars. A lot of people know them as arborvitaes, Thuja occidentalis. They're our state's oldest trees, about a thousand years. If people want to hear more about this, there's an option to go to the Capital Region Flower and Garden Expo at Hudson Valley Community College, March 24th, 26th, where Fred will be doing presentations on big trees and ancient forests on both Saturday and Sunday, also doing things on improving soils, promoting plant health through proper pruning. I've yeah. taken a pruning workshop with him and it's really helpful. In our last couple minutes, Tell yep. us about Landis Arboretum and where we can get more information. 
Atlantis Arboretum is located in Esperance, New York. Open dawn to dusk, 365 days a year, free of charge. Donations always welcome. And we have miles of hiking trails and trees and shrubs from all, all over the place. Um, we have a great collection of native plants. In fact, the native plant trail has virtually every woody plant that's native to New York growing on a mile loop and tons of signage. So, you know, you can um, add a lot of, to your informal learning just by a visit there without any tour guides. We incorporate QR codes. And uh, I tell folks to visit our website, landisarboretum.org, our one-stop shop for all things Landis. Information about some of the events that are there are a snowshoe walk or if no snow hike on March 12th, the wonderful plant sale on May 20th and 21st. They have both unusual plants purchased from a nursery as well as homegrown plants. So you know that they'll work in our environment. Thanks a lot, Fred. Good talking with you. See you at the plant sale. All right, Bria. Thanks again. Fred is probably the only person I know who may give directions according to the trees that are near each turn, possibly even by Latin name. If you have not been to Landis Arboretum yet, it's worth the hour-long drive from Albany if you can get there. And uh, Media Sanctuary has a pruning and grafting workshop coming up for tree lovers with More Trees Arborist Collective. That's also on March 25th. Very good stuff, Bria. Thank you very much for listeners just tuning in. I'm Blaze Bryant. You are listening to Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network. W-O-O-O-S... Let me try that again. W-O-O-C-L-P 105.3 FM Troy. W-O-O-G-L-P 92.7 FM Troy. W-O-O-S-L-P 98.9 FM Schenectady. And W-O-O-A-L-P 106.9 FM Albany. Streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. And I'm Bria Barthel. If you like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend. Share the love. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. And now on to our next story, Blaze. Thank you. The Department of Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies began in 1971 at the University at Albany. Over the years, it has grown from a few classes to a department at the University at Albany, which has educated many students who are engaged in a wide variety of fields. Moses Nagel found out more. Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies is a department at UAlbany that aims to explore the subjects of women and gender through the intersectional lens of race, class, sexuality, and nationality. Barbara Sutton, a professor and current chair of the department, explained what that means in practice. Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies uh, is an interdisciplinary field. It addresses uh, matters of power, inequality, injustice, it does it from the perspectives uh, of fields like you know, sociology, uh, philosophy, the arts, the humanities, history. Um, it really brings into the center of inquiry, you know, ways in which different groups of people, particularly women, LGBTQ communities have been uh, marginalized uh, and also the struggles to change things in society. 
It's a very rich uh, field of study. It, it brings also a variety of uh, methods or lenses to, to address uh, the problems, and it really addresses many of the critical uh, issues of the day. When Judy Fetterman began as an English professor at the university in the early 70s, there was one woman's studies class. She's retired now, so we met in a local coffee shop. She told me how she and her colleagues at the time developed groundbreaking classes and grew into a full department. The first one we developed was called Perspectives on Women, and it was a great course. And it's, it's really interesting to think about it now. This was a course in which we had feminist scholars from all the disciplines you know, come in and talk about how sexism affected the form and content of their discipline. And it was fascinating, absolutely fascinating. We had an art historian, we had a physicist, we had someone from history, we had someone from sociology. It really went across the disciplines. It was an absolutely essential introductory course. We're talking 1973. I think we, we did it in the... in the. I mean, uh, it's hard to even imagine now how easy of a topic it was at that time, I'm sure, you well, know? Well, it was fascinating. The history of that course, you could say, registers the impact of feminist thinking because it was a way of really looking at the whole project of education, of research, of science, of the humanities. I mean, it was really shedding a light on how massively sexism had affected not just the content, but the way people went about understanding those disciplines. You know, I mean, science with its whole notion of objectivity, bullshit. I mean, it was so compromised by sexism in terms of what it was able to see and not see. You come into a thing with such a lens, and people who haven't been there don't realize what a lens it was. I mean, it was literally impossible to see any other way. And once you've got something that huge, people think it's objective because they don't see any other way. So it was a, it was a great place to start. The second course we developed was equally obvious in a sense. It was uh, classism, racism, and sexism. It was an example of what's now called intersectional thinking very early on in which we were very unique among early women's studies programs to look at class. We don't talk about class in this country because we don't have it, right? We're a classless society. Anybody can be anything. So classism, racism, sexism, how they intersected. So then the third course that we developed was called Introduction to Feminism. And this was where we followed a model from the State University at Buffalo. They had a very vibrant uh, women's studies program. And they had developed a mode of teaching which involved faculty and students teaching together. And so we decided to, to adopt that pattern here. In the fall of 1976, I taught a course called Introduction to Feminism. And out of that course, we solicited students to volunteer to develop the course as something that could be taught by a combination of students and faculty the following year. And that is what started what is now called the Teaching Collective, which has continued until this day. I think it's still, still going on. 
And when I think of the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of students that have been through this course, you know, something that we started back in 1976, that's pretty amazing. And if you think that class has been taught at least once a year, sometimes we had as many as five or six sections of it. That's thousands of students that have come through that class. And even more significant, the students that taught it, it changed them. I mean, I, I was so impressed how they took hold of developing the curriculum. I asked Professor Sutton what it means to say that the department is interdisciplinary and intersectional. One of the things that I love about, you know, women's gender and sexuality studies is this freedom to look at a problem not constrained by the discipline and having to remain with, within those bounds. I see, you know, a problem and I see, you know, where are the tools that I need to address the, the problem? And it might not be just contained in a single discipline. I have been trained as a sociologist, which also, you know, has a variety of perspectives. And I was always, you know, perhaps interdisciplinary in the way that I, I practice uh, sociology. But I think that being in women's gender sexuality studies has expanded that and it allows me also to think about different ways of kind of packaging the information to, you know, like just to think about different audiences, different modes of communicating that some in which I may not have expertise myself, but that requires that I then collaborate with colleagues in other places, uh, you know, in the university or outside the university, whether it is through art, whether it is through um, thinking uh, from the perspective of philosophy or thinking historically. I mean, the issue then is driven by, okay, so you have a problem and what tools, you know, from different uh, areas can help you best address it. So I, that's something I really love about this field uh, of study, that that interdisciplinary aspect. And in terms of when we talk about intersectionality, um, it means too that we cannot think, for example, about the situation of women only in terms of uh, gender, that we need to think about gender as mutually constituted by other you know, vectors of, of difference and uh, inequality, whether it's uh, race or sexuality or class location. So um, these things come together in complex ways so that, you know, when we think about, you know, challenging uh, women's uh, subordination in certain areas or marginalizations, we need to think about these things together. We cannot just focus on gender. Professor Sutton outlined all the different fields and professions that WGSS students can end up in, highlighting some famous alumni such as the actress Aquafina and author Jessica Valenti. Also, she explained why it is important to maintain this department and others like it in the big picture. I think also one of the reasons institutions care about these matters in the first place is because, you know, departments or areas of study like women's gender sexuality studies have generated, you know, the research and the theory that, that have brought these issues into public awareness. So that knowledge that is created by scholars, you know, in these areas need to be maintained and, and their future work nourished. For example, our university aspires to be the leading diverse public research uh, university. And 
And so this requires a double move, one uh, that is that spans the, the university, but also one that is targeted. And the targeted part means sustaining departments that specifically um, center on diversity, inclusion, equity, and social uh, justice, and you know, thinking about the contributions in a holistic way. Back at the coffee shop, Judy Fetterman explained a little about why everyone could use some of this knowledge. I have a friend whose husband and brother, he said, they both say feminism saved my life. Feminism has made my life so much better. I said, oh, I wish they would write that book. I mean, that's what we need to hear. We need to hear from men that actually it's not the tragedy that, you know, is purported to be, but this way of being can actually be a lot better. That's not a story that's getting told. We're hearing all the yeah. things, the negatives about these changes and not for men and not enough about the positive. It'd be nice to get some more people writing about, you know, how it's good for men. Reporting for Hudson Mohawk Magazine, this is Moses Nagel. This is the second studies program that Moses explored at UAlbany. You can find his first report on the Latin American, Caribbean, and U.S. Latino Studies program on our website. He will explore some of the other special programs at UAlbany in future episodes. Coming up on March 9th and 15th, the Future of Small Cities Institute has programming taking place at the Focus Lab. Sina Bazila Hickey sat down with Rafe Larson. We're joined again by Rafe Larson, founder of Future of Small Cities Institute, which has a few events coming up. So thank you for coming on to Hudson Mohawk Magazine to tell us about what's happening. Thanks for having me, as always. So before we get into the upcoming events, every Saturday, there's an opportunity to visit the Focus Lab in downtown Troy. The current exhibition is on the future of cities and urban sustainability lab. Can you give us a little bit of a teaser before we go into the rest of your programming? Yeah, so this is our second exhibition after our first exhibition on Hudson Riverfronts. And this one's called Main Streets Resurfaced. And it's looking at the history of downtown corridors, uh, how they went through a kind of rough patch during the 20th century, and now how they're at this really interesting inflection point now where we're looking at you know, what, what is the future of our main streets? Uh, what is the future of storefronts, retail economies, all those questions of how do we make our cities walkable, vibrant, uh, human-centric places? And we're featuring a bunch of different cities in the region. We have Troy's own Third Street. Um, we have Cohoes. We have Poughkeepsie, uh, Kingston, and then a bunch of cities in Western Mass as well. And in that location, in, in Focus Lab, is uh, where your upcoming events will be taking place, plus virtually, or at least the first one. So on Thursday, March 9th, in the Focus Lab, the event is called Maine and Maine at the intersection of imperative and opportunity. Tell us more. Yeah, so this is my chance to bring, uh, I think he's a real genius, David Dixon. I've encountered him a couple times at speaking events, and he's just one of these people that sees sort of clearly about cities and the, and the directory of cities. He has all, you know, all these kind of housing trends and workforce trends at the tip of his tongue. So I asked him to come and sort of drop a bunch of cool knowledge on us. He's really interested in how you cultivate downtowns. How do you bring density to downtowns? How do you make them walkable places? 
he's worked in cities all across this, uh, the country in everywhere from like Tampa and New Orleans to Boston to Ohio. He's done a lot of really interesting work of um, infill in downtowns of Ohio. Um, he's done a lot of work on suburban remixing of malls, making them, you know, transforming mall complexes into residential neighborhoods. So he has a real sense of how not only you transform places, but how you create a kind of longevity in these places. And a lot of his work is around um, talent cultivation and retention. So bringing smart, wonderful people and making them stay, making a place sticky for these these places, uh, these people. Um, but also obviously doing in a way that's equitable. So you're not just gentrifying a place, but leaving room for citizens who live there already, which is admittedly a really complicated cocktail and a moving target, but he speaks about it really, really eloquently. And I think, you know, as we're all trying to get our hands around, like what is going to be a, a healthy, um, vibrant downtown in the 21st century? Like, what does that mean? You know, what, what does business look like? He's aware of all the kind of trends, right? So, you know, even in Troy, we have our farmer's market, we have small businesses that are now post COVID looking at hybrid businesses, they're doing online business, they're doing walk in business, we have a bunch of second story businesses, right, a lot of which are like gaming industries, we have these new sort of market rate rent housing coming online. So how do you balance all these uh, forces in an equitable way to make when you walk down a corridor, when you walk down a main street, like a place you want to go, you know, and a place you want to go in like midweek on the Saturday on a Sunday. Um, and I think a lot of smaller cities are trying to figure out how they revamp, remix their downtowns to be that place. So that's what the, the event will be about. I'm really super excited to bring him and introduce him to the capital region. He's done work in Albany before, but I think a lot of people don't know his work. So this is a great intro. So this is at the Focus Lab, but also live streamed. But people like me, who's at work at those hours, is there a way to get a recording afterwards? Yes. Yeah, so all registrants will um, can have an opportunity to watch it live live stream, and then we'll we'll make a recording available too, if you register as well. Yeah. So we're we're believers in in making it uh, as accessible as possible. And admittedly, like hybrid events are tricky because you're trying to appease both people in the room and those in the internet, but uh, we're doing our best. And I think it's the way of the future for any sort of programming or event making. And for those who are coming to the event live, we've just introduced a really exciting part of our space, uh, which is a story booth, which you'd be interested in. Yes. <laughs> where it's like a, a little booth that you can walk into and there's a, a little screen, you can um, tap it and you can tell the story of your downtown or of your city um, so we're collecting sort of community voices community videos that will then incorporate and integrate into the exhibit itself so um, people can stop by for the event and also leave leave us a little uh, a little narrative behind which would be great oh exciting wonderful and you also have another really wonderful event coming up that's on March 15th the event is called lost roundout a story of urban removal. We mentioned Kingston before, and that's the area that this event is focusing on. Tell us more about this one. Yeah, so Stephen Blauweiss is a historian. He created this amazing history book on, on Kingston, which you can actually see at the Focus Lab and Buy. And he's an incredible resource. He's also a filmmaker, and he made a film on the Roundout, which is one of Kingston, although it's a small place, it actually has three different downtowns. The Rondout is the one that's right on the Hudson River. It's a shoreline community community 
There, the Hudson River Maritime Museum, who's a great um, ally of of the Focus Lab, is there, located there. Uh, he made a film with um, the journalist and painter and multi-talented Lynn Woods about the urban renewal uh, project that that really gutted the heart of Rondout. It's a story that's been told in a lot of these smaller cities. They built a um, basically like a, a, a throughway access for downtown Kingston right through. Uh, you know, a, a mixed-use neighborhood um, and this this bridge, and destroyed a lot of homes. So this is a one of the more eloquent portraits of that, and like what is lost, what was what were they trying to accomplish, and what are the kind of after effects that that neighborhood is still feeling. Um, and it's interesting now, particularly in Troy, where they're taking down Uncle Sam's garage. There's new plans afoot for the um, atrium right across the street from the Focus Lab. You know, we're really trying to grapple with these grand designs for urban renewal, which, you know, dominated the 70s and 80s and, you know, even into the 90s of these cities and created these real gaps, these these huge holes in, in the middle of these downtowns. Sometimes they, they didn't even build anything, right? They just, it was an excuse for them to destroy a quote unquote blighted neighborhood. And then, you know, the mayoral administration changed over, they ran out of money and now it's still a parking lot, right? Um, mm. You see that in cities all over all over this region. So it's a really interesting, important history, and it's one that's now coming to the light as we are trying to kind of recultivate and re-energize our downtown. So Stephen will be on hand with Lynn, and then we also have our, our local historian, uh, David Hockfelder from UAlbany, who's doing a whole history of urban renewal. Yes, we just cities. had him on the program th last week and to talk about the what you just said was like this idea of urban plight and like bringing in the the renewal. So that's excellent. We're lucky to have him here. He did a whole um, beautiful piece on uh, Empire Plaza about the damage that that project did, you know, in pursuit of creating a monument, uh, state legislatures and state government, uh, you know, we lost the whole neighborhood. So it's it's all around us uh, and we're living with it. Um, and it's a, it's an important history to tell. So we love showing films in the, the Focus Lab. Our last... Uh, film series we had over 90 folks show up and we serve popcorn and it's 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 a great time so um and that's free but you do have to reserve a ticket so wonderful so future of small cities.org is where those can be reserved where you can register and as we're wrapping up here what would you like to leave our listeners with yeah well we're what's exciting about the focus lab is we're you know coming up on our year anniversary and i think the city and the region is starting to figure out what is an urban room you know when we kind of launched there was this question of like, how do we use this place? And we always talked about it as a space for dialogue and debate and like a living room for the city. And now we're seeing, we're getting a lot of requests for use uh, and we're encouraging these requests. So in the month of March alone, we're doing like a Narcan um, overdose training. We're, we're holding office hours with one of our Troy City, city Councilors each month. One of our transportation groups is doing their launch for their group in, our, in the space. Um, a developer is holding a listening session. So it's really exciting that this is actually now being activated as this kind of extension of the city. And um, and we now have a classroom that we're, that's operational. So we're doing school visits too. So I'm excited to see this place grow. Rafe Larson, it's always a pleasure to have you on our program. Thank you so much. Thanks to Sina for that interview. For more details about all those upcoming events, that website again is www future of small cities all one word dot org 
Thank you, Bria. Now with us, as he usually is on most Monday evenings, and if you're catching this on the replay, Tuesday mornings, retired National Weather Service meteorologist Hugh Johnson, who is back from Florida. Hey, Hugh, welcome back. How's reality treating you? In some ways, I miss Florida, Blaze. Uh, it's still in the 80s down there, and I came back right before that big snowstorm on Saturday, so... A little bit of a rude awakening, but hey, it's March in Albany. What are you going to do? <laughs> Indeed. Well, we had two storms. The one last week that really didn't amount to as much. Well, really, neither did the one we had over the weekend, though in spite or despite of those two storms, it was pretty quiet. Yeah, well, I thought the one on the weekend, it looked to me like the, the accumulations were pretty good with what the forecasters came up with. The one earlier in the week definitely was an underperformer. But the, the one this weekend, the, the thing to take home was all the power outages. Uh, did you realize there were up to nearly 50,000 people in the dark with that, mostly in the capital region? If you looked at the uh, power outage maps, it was like almost all concentrated in our area. So I think it was just a combination. The snow was just wet enough and uh, heavy enough to to cause the damage. And I still see a lot of tree limbs down all over the place when I go by and walk and stuff. It was pretty nasty. We lost power here for 30 seconds. I guess we were lucky. I lost power for three hours in Albany. Yeah, that's, that's not, that's an inconvenience, but thankfully it wasn't horrible. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Well, here's the thing. We had six in my house, I had 6.6 inches and 0.98 inches of liquid equivalent when I melted that snow. In a normal snow in Albany, you're looking more like a 10 to 1, 12 to 1 ratio, liquid to snow ratio. So it should have been about half an inch of liquid. So we had a lot more liquid. And because of that, it was very wet and clingy. It just it was just a perfect combination. I, it's the most destructive snow we've had here in a while, I, I, I'd say, in many years. Well, very interesting indeed, Hugh Johnson, with me, Blaze Bryant, and... Bria Barthel here on Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I mean, we could talk about the storm and compare it to what things have been like over the years, but this past winter, you know, December through February, the temperatures were well above normal, a little over 32 degrees. What's going on? Another warm one, yes, indeed. Uh, third, it, it, I didn't see it on the National Weather Service page, but it looks to me as though it, it comes close to time for our third warmest winter ever. Our warmest, by the way, was that Super El Nino back in 1516 when we averaged 33.4, so only a degree off. But you know, basically most of the winter we were not in a, in a uh, progressive uh, pattern. There was no blocking. The, the polar vortex was well north, and we had a lot of clouds. The clouds probably, believe it or not, might have been the biggest wild card keeping us warm because it kept temperatures at night above freezing. Many nights in January, January particularly was mild. We had a little period of cold weather in December, and we had that one brief, really cold shot in February. But other than that, that's all she wrote. We had a few snowstorms, but slop storms, uh, nothing you know of great consequence. So, yeah, this is this is climate change. I mean, you know, it just seems like this is the pattern we're in where we get these mild winters, and then as we talked about. A lot of times we end up having a colder early spring because the polar vortex weakens, uh, lets the cold air down, and now it's just stuck floating around for a while. So that seems to be what the case is going to be. This March has not looked so hot. <laughs> so despite the warmer weather, 
as you just explained about polar vo- vortex, we can probably expect some more snow? Yeah, probably along the line. Now, here's the good news, if you don't like snow like me, is we're going to see a storm go to our south tonight. It's a small one, it's, but it has a little moderate, a pretty narrow band of moderate snow. It's going to be a Scranton, New York City, possibly down the Philly uh, problem, and should p- pass well or south. What it will do, though, is kick up the winds tomorrow. Tomorrow's going to be a little colder and feeling. And then we're going to watch for storms over the weekend and around Pi Day. Uh, there's two potential storms, and miles are all over the place. Uh, I think we definitely have to keep an eye out because it's right now it's up in the air. We could end up getting some pretty good snow from at least one of those systems. So, yeah, it's definitely a, we're not out of the woods yet, and there's really no warm-up in sight. Uh, Hugh just mentioned Pi Day. For those few who may not know, Pi Day <laughs> is March 14th because it's 3.14, the first, for the beginning of the decimals for Pi, P-I. Yeah, I, I will make one prediction. It will not be as bad if we get snow on the Tuesday. It will not be as bad as the Pi Day storm at 17 when we got at my house 23.2 inches of snow. I think the airport got like 18 they were on the low end of things, but that was a huge storm. I don't think we'll get anything quite like that. <laughs> so not only do we have to be aware of the Ides of March, but also mm-hmm. a snowstorm. Yep, yep, you got it. <laughs> the way well, it goes. Hugh Shakespeare, yeah, well, Hugh Shakespeare Johnson joins us here <laughs> on Hudson Mohawk oh, Magazine. <laughs> hey, well, yeah, hey, Hugh, I had to do it. Uh, so... Let's talk about daylight savings time and its impact on climate change and different energies. Okay, well, on climate change, I mean, daylight time is, you know, basically you turn the clock's hour ahead and, and back. It really has no bearing on climate change, but, but it does have a bearing on how you distribute heat in the morning or, or lights, you know. And, and the funny thing was, Blade, back in 06, when we started doing daylight time in mid-March, there was an article that came out in the paper that they raised gasoline prices 25 cents and they blamed it on daylight time, even though it was supposed to save energy. Why? Because it got dark again in the morning. Mornings are getting light. Back to an hour. So, you know, kids were going out in the dark. And, and yeah, that's going to happen. It's, it doesn't necessarily, in my opinion, save energy. And, of course, you get into the whole thing about the permanent daylight time and all that. And I'm not a big fan of it for a lot of reasons. But, uh, you know. It's great in the summer. I love it in the summer. So that, that's just my own opinion. But it doesn't do anything with daylo- um, climate, no. <laughs> and what Hugh was mentioning yeah. is that the Senate has passed a bill to make daylight savings time permanent year-round, but the House has uh, not acted on it because people disagree on if it should be standard time year-round or daylight savings time year-round. They both agree that— I don't that- think we'll—yeah. Uh, Go ahead. I don't think we'll see standard time ever all year round. That that would that would kill the economy. I mean, you got to you know you got to have people out buying the ice cream at eight nine o'clock in the evening when it's still light out. So, but it's just a question: do we stay where we are, or do we just go daylight time all year round? And you know, you probably probably even lead to split as, as many things are. You know, people will some people will say sure, but I remember in '74 we went to daylight time in January. It was horrible. Kids were getting hurt and stuff because it was pitch black in the morning going to school. So, you know, that's what you're up against. You just you can't change the nine hours of daylight. You're still gonna. That's not gonna change. It's just how you skew it. 
Then again, I remember there's merit. that being one of our first conversations, by the way, when, when I started doing oh, these wow. shows with you. Yeah. Cool. We Calder can always do what some of the Canadian maritime provinces do of take the average and go to half hours rather than an hour forward or back. Yeah, that, that is, that's a compromise. That, that might work. Yeah, there's, there's many, many, many things. But again, you know, back to the climate and so forth, it, it just really seems like the pattern that I'm seeing is, you know, milder winters. And followed by delayed springs. It seems like the last few years, although it's funny, I looked at the last four marches, they were actually above normal. But April definitely was where you sometimes feel even more. And I remember 18, we had a really cold April after having uh, a, you know, a relatively normal or a slightly above normal winter. But we had a really bad April, sure. which is cold. Yeah. Sure. Hugh, we've got 60 seconds. Give us the forecast. Okay. Dry tonight, cold, cloudy, windy tomorrow. But stays dry the rest of the week. Uh, cold tomorrow, seasonable temperatures Thursday and Friday around 40 again. And then watch out for the weekend. Still uh, a possibility of a snowstorm. And then another one we talked about into next week. And temperatures staying at or a little bit below normal. So uh, get used to it. <laughs> all right. Okay. Well, I guess that's all we can do is do our best to get used to it. Hugh Johnson, we are flat out of time. Thank you so much, as always, for joining us here on Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Great having you back again for another discussion, and we look forward to talking with you again next week. You got it. My pleasure. Have a great one, folks. <laughs> Thank you, Hugh. You as well. And that does it for this episode of Hudson Mohawk Magazine. We hope you have enjoyed. I am Blaze Bryant. And I'm Bria Barthel. Our engineer is the amazing Sina Bazila Hickey. We want to thank all of the volunteers who made this episode possible. Besides Blaze, myself, and Sina, other contributors to today's episode are Mark Dunley and Moses Nagel. Contact us if you want to join our team. This program covers stories of social and environmental justice produced by the community, for the community, and is supported by independent donations. If you value independent media, consider a gift of a monthly donation as a sanctuary sustainer by going to mediasanctuary.org and clicking on the Donate tab. We want to hear from you. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Media Sanctuary. You can also send us an email, hmm at mediasanctuary.org. Tune in every weekday at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. to hear local news or stream Sanctuary Radio. Again, at mediasanctuary.org, where you also can find full episodes and stream Sanctuary Radio. Thank you so much for making us a part of your day. Take care on Hudson Mohawk Magazine. the youngest producer. You've been listening to Hudson Mohawk Magazine, featuring news and views from around the New York Capital Region. Listen at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. on Sanctuary Radio, 105.3 FM, Troy, and online at mediasanctuary.org. You can also visit mediasanctuary.org anytime to hear the Hudson Mohawk magazine on demand or to sign up for our podcast.